Chapter Four of Vandover and the Brute. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Miller. Vandover and the Brute by Frank Norris. Chapter Four. The Imperial was a resort not far from the corner of Sutter and Kearney streets, a few doors below a certain well-known drug store, in one window of which was a showcase full of live snakes. The front of the Imperial was painted white, and there was a cigar stand in the vestibule of the main entrance. At the right of this main entrance was another smaller one, a ladies' entrance, on the frosted pane of which one read, Oyster Café. The main entrance opened directly into the barroom. It was a handsome room, paved with marble flags. To the left was the bar, whose counter was a single slab of polished redwood. Behind it was a huge plate-glass mirror, balanced on one side by the cash register, and on the other by a statuette of the diving girl in tinted bisque. Between the two were pyramids of glasses and bottles, liquor flasks in wicker cases, and a great bouquet of sweet peas. The three bartenders, in clean linen coats and aprons, moved about here and there, opening bottles, mixing drinks, and occasionally turning to punch the indicator of the register. On the other side of the room, facing the bar, hung a large copy of a French picture representing a Sabbath, witches, goats, and naked girls whirling through the air. Underneath it, was the lunch counter, where clam fritters, the specialty of the place, could be had four afternoons in the week. Elsewhere were nickel-in-the-slot machines, cigar lighters, a vase of wax flowers under glass, and a racing chart setting forth the day's odds, weights, and entries. On the end wall over the pantry slides was a second barroom picture, representing the ladies of a harem at their bath. But its private rooms were the chief attraction of the Imperial. These were reached by going in through the smaller door to the right of the main vestibule. Anyone coming in through this entrance found himself in a long and narrow passage. On the right of this passage were eight private rooms, very small, and open at the top, as the law required. Halfway down its length, the passage grew wider. Here the rooms were on both sides and were much larger than those in front. It was this part of the Imperial that was most frequented and that had made its reputation. In the smaller rooms in front, one had beer and Welsh rabbits. In the larger rooms, champagne and terrapin. Vandover, Haight, and Geary came in through the ladies' entrance of the Imperial at about eleven o'clock going slowly down the passage, looking into each of the little rooms, searching for one that was empty. All at once Vandover, who was in the lead, cried out, Well, if here isn't that man Ellis, drinking whiskey by himself. Pah, a man that will drink whiskey all alone. Glad to see you just the same, Bandy. Move along, will you? Give a man some room. Hello, hello, Bandy, cried Geary, and young Haight, hitting him in the back, while Geary added, How long have you been down here? I've just come from making a call with the boys. Had a fine time 
What are you drinking? Whiskey? I'm going to have something to eat. Didn't have much of a lunch today, but you ought to have seen the steak I had at the grill room. Thick as that and tender. Oh, it went great. Here, hang my coat up there on that side, will you? Bancroft Ellis was one of the young men of the city, with whom the three fellows had become acquainted just after their return from college. For the most part, they met him in downtown restaurants, in the foyers and vestibules of the theaters, on Kearney Street of a Saturday afternoon, or, as now, in the little rooms of the Imperial, where he was a recognized habitué, and where he invariably called for whiskey, finishing from three to five ponies at every sitting. On very rare occasions they saw him in society, at the houses where their set was received. At these functions Ellis could never be persuaded to remain in the parlors. He slipped up to the gentlemen's dressing-rooms at the earliest opportunity, and spent the evening silently smoking the cigars and cigarettes furnished by the host. When Vandover and his friends came up between dances to brush their hair or to rearrange their neckties, they found him enveloped in a blue haze of smoke, his feet on a chair, his shirt-bosom broken, and his waistcoat unbuttoned. He would tell them that he was bored and thirsty, and ask how much longer they were going to stay. He knew but few of their friends. His home was in a little town in the interior, and he prided himself on being a native son of the Golden West. He was a clerk in an insurance office on California Street, and had never been out of the state. For the rest, he was a good enough fellow, and the three others liked him very much. He had a curious passion for facts and statistics, and his pockets were full of little books and cards to which he was constantly referring. He had one of those impossible pocket diaries, the first half-dozen pages loaded with information of every kind printed in blinding type, postal rates to every country in the world, statistics as to population and rates of death, weights and measures, the highest mountains in the world, the greatest depths of the ocean. He kept a little book in his left-hand vest pocket that gave the plan and seating capacity of every theater in the city, while in the right-hand pocket was a tiny Webster's Dictionary, which was his especial pride. The calendar for the current year was pasted in the lining of his hat, together with the means to be employed in the resuscitation of a half-drowned person. He also carried about a vest pocket edition of popular information, which had never been of the slightest use to him. The room in which they were now seated was very small and opened directly upon the passage. On either side of the table was a seat that would hold two, and on the wall opposite the door hung a mirror, its gilt frame enclosed in pink netting. The table itself was covered with a tolerably clean cloth, though it was of coarse linen and rather damp. There were the usual bottles of olives and pepper sauce, a plate of broken crackers, and a ribbed match-safe of china. The sugar bowl was of plated ware, and on it were scratched numberless dates together with the first names of a great many girls, Nanny, Ida, Flossie. Between the castor bottles was the bill of fare, held by a thin string between two immense leather covers which were stamped with wine merchants' advertisements. Geary reached for this before any of the others, saying at the same time, Well, what are you going to have? I'm going to have a Welsh rarebit and a pint of ale. 
he looked from one to the other as if demanding whether or no they approved of his choice he assumed the management of what was going on advising the others what to have telling vandover not to order certain dishes that he liked because it took so long to cook them he had young haight ring for the waiter and when he had come geary read off the entire order to him twice over making sure that he had taken it correctly that's what we want all right all right isn't it he said looking around at the rest the waiter whose eyes were red from lack of sleep put down before them a plate of limp soft shrimps hello toby said vandover good evening gentlemen answered toby why good evening mr vandover haven't seen you round here for some time he took their order and as he was going away vandover called him back say toby said he has flossie been around to-night no answered toby she has not shown up yet her running mate was in about nine but she went out again right away well said vandover smiling if flossie comes round show her in here will you the others laughed and joked him about this and vandover settled back in his seat easing his position ah he exclaimed i like it in here it's always pleasant and warm and quiet and the service is good and you get such good things to eat now that the young fellows were by themselves and could relax that restraint that good breeding and delicacy which had been natural to them in the early part of the evening at the ravises their manners changed they lounged clumsily upon their seats their legs stretched out their waistcoats unbuttoned caring only to be at their ease their talk and manners became blunt rude unconstrained the coarser masculine fibre reasserting itself with the exception of young haight they were all profane enough and it was not very long before their conversation became obscene geary told them how he had spent the afternoon promenading kearney and market streets and just where he had gone to get his cocktail and his cigar ah he added you ought to have seen ida wade and bessie laguna oh ida was rigged up to beat the band honestly her hat was as broad across as that you know there's no use talking she's an awfully handsome girl a discussion arose over the girl's virtue ellis geary and young haight maintained that ida was only fast vandover however had his doubts for that matter said ellis after a while i like bessie laguna a good deal better than i do ida ah yes retorted young haight you like bessie laguna too much anyhow young haight had a theory that one should never care in any way for that kind of girl nor become at all intimate with her the matter of liking her or not liking her he said ought not to enter into the question at all you are both of you out for a good time and that's all you have a jolly flirtation with her for an hour or two and you never see her again that's the way it ought to be this idea of getting intimate with that sort of a piece and trying to get her to care for you is all wrong oh said vandover deprecatingly you take all the pleasure out of it where does your good time come in if you don't at least pretend that you like the girl and try to make her like you but don't you see answered haight what a dreadful thing it would be if a girl like that came to care for you seriously it isn't the same as if it were a girl of your own class ah dolly you've got a bean muttered ellis sipping his whiskey meanwhile the imperial had been filling up 
At about eleven, the theaters were over, and now the barroom was full of men. They came in by twos and threes, and sometimes even by noisy parties of a half-dozen or more. The white swing doors of the main entrance flapped back and forth continually, letting out into the street puffs of tepid air tainted with the smell of alcohol. The men entered and ordered their drinks, and leaning their elbows upon the bar continued the conversation they had begun outside. Afterward, they passed over to the lunch counter and helped themselves to a plate of stewed tripe or potato salad, eating it in a secluded corner, leaning over so as not to stain their coats. There was a continual clinking of glasses and popping of corks, and at every instant the cast register clucked and rang its bell. Between the barroom and the other part of the house was a door hung with blue plush curtains looped back. The waiters constantly passed back and forth through this, carrying plates of oysters, smoking rarebits, tiny glasses of liqueurs, and goblets of cigars. All the private rooms opening from either passage were full. The men came in, walking slowly, looking for their friends, but more often the women and girls passed up and down with a chatter of conversation, a rattle of stiff skirts and petticoats, and a heavy whiff of musk. There was a continual going and coming, a monotonous shuffle of feet and hum of talk, a heavy odorous warmth in which were mingled the smells of sweetened whiskey, tobacco, the fumes of cooking, and the scent of perfume, exhaled into the air. A gay and noisy party developed in one of the large back rooms. At every moment one could hear gales of laughter, the rattle of chairs and glassware, mingled with the sounds of men's voices and the little screams and cries of women. Every time the waiter opened the door to deliver an order, he let out a momentary torrent of noises. Girls, habitués of the place, continued to pass the door of the room where Vandover and his friends were seated. Each time a particularly handsome one went by, the four looked out after her, shutting their lips and eyes, and nodding their heads. Young Haight had called for more drinks, ordering, however, mineral water for himself, and Vandover was just telling about posing the female models in a certain life class to which he belonged, when he looked up and broke off, exclaiming, Well, well, here we are at last. How are you, Flossie? Come right in. Flossie stood in the doorway, smiling good-humoredly at them, without a trace of embarrassment or of confusion in her manner. She was an immense girl, quite six feet tall, broad, and well-made in proportion. She was very handsome, full-throated, heavy-eyed, and slow in her movements. Her eyes and mouth, like everything about her, were large, but each time she spoke or smiled, she disclosed her teeth, which were as white, as well-set, and as regular as the rows of kernels on an ear of green corn. In her ears were small yellow diamonds, the only jewelry she wore. There was no perceptible cosmetic on her face, which had a clean and healthy look, as though she had just given it a vigorous washing. She wore a black hat with a great flare to the brim on one side. It was trimmed very dashingly with black feathers, imitation jet, and a little puff of plush robin's egg blue. Her dress was of rough black camel's hair, tailor-made, and but for the immense balloon sleeves, absolutely plain. It was cut in such a way 
that from neck to waist there was no break, the buttons being on the shoulder and under the arm. The skirt was full and stiff, and without the least trimming. Everything was black, her hat, dress, gloves, and the effect was of a simplicity and severity so pronounced as to be very striking. However, around her waist she wore as a belt a thick rope of oxidized silver, while her shoes, or rather walking slippers, were of white canvas. She belonged to that class of women who are not to know one's last name or address, and whose hate and love are equally to be dreaded. There was upon her face the unmistakable traces of a ruined virtue and a vanished innocence. Her slightest action suggested her profession. As soon as she removed her veil and gloves, it was as though she were partially undressed, and her uncovered face and hands seemed to be only portions of her nudity. The general conception of women of her class is a painted and broken wreck. Flossie radiated health. Her eyes were clear, her nerves steady, her flesh hard, and even as a child's. There hung about her an air of cleanliness, of freshness, of good nature, of fine high spirits, while with her every movement she exhaled a delicious perfume that was not only musk, but that seemed to come alike from her dress, her hair, her neck, her very flesh and body. Vandover was no longer the same as he had been during his college days. He was familiar now with this odor of abandoned women, this foul, sweet savor of the great city's vice that quickened his breath and that sent his heart knocking at his throat. It was the sensitive artist nature in him that responded instantly to anything sensuously attractive. Each kind and class of beautiful women could arouse in Vandover passions of equal force, though of far different kind. Turner Ravis influenced him upon his best side, calling out in him all that was cleanest, finest, and most delicate. Flossie appealed only to the animal and the beast in him, the evil, hideous brute that made instant answer. "'What will you take, Flossie?' asked Vandover, as she settled herself among them. "'We are all drinking beer except Ellis.' He's filling up with whiskey. But Flossie never drank. It was one of the peculiarities for which she was well known. I don't want either, she answered, and turning to the waiter, she added, You can bring me some Apollinaris water, Toby. Flossie betrayed herself as soon as she spoke. The effect of her appearance was spoiled. Her voice was hoarse, a low-pitched rasp, husky, throaty, and full of brutal, vulgar modulations. "'Smoke, Flossie,' said Geary, pushing his cigarette case across to her. Flossie took a cigarette, rolled it to make it loose, and smoked it while she told them how she had once tried to draw up the smoke through her nose as it came out between her lips. "'And honestly, boys,' she growled, "'it made me that sick that I just had to go to bed. "'But is the crowd out back?' asked Geary for the sake of saying something. Flossie embarrassed them all a little, and conversation with girls of her class was difficult. Oh, that's May and Nanny with some men from a banquet at the Palace Hotel, she answered. The talk dragged along, little by little, and Flossie began badgering young Haight. Say, you, over there, she exclaimed, what's the matter with you? You don't say anything. Young Haight blushed and answered very much embarrassed. Oh, I'm just listening. 
He was anxious to get away. He got up and reached for his hat and coat, saying with a good-natured smile, "'Well, boys and girls, I think I shall have to leave you.' "'Don't let me frighten you away,' said Flossie, laughing. "'Oh, no,' he answered, trying to hide his embarrassment. "'I have to go, anyhow.' While the others were saying good-night to him and asking when they should see him again, Flossie leaned over to him, crying out, "'Good-night!' All at once, and before he knew what she was about, she kissed him full on the mouth. He started sharply at this, but was not angry, simply pulling away from her, blushing, very embarrassed, and more and more anxious to get away. Toby, the waiter, appeared at their door. "'That last was on me, you know,' said young Haight, intercepting Vandover and settling for the round of drinks. "'Hello!' exclaimed Toby. "'What's the matter with your lip?' "'I cut it a little while ago on a broken glass,' answered young Haight. "'Is it bleeding again?' he added, putting two fingers on his lips. "'It is sure enough,' said Geary. "'Here,' he went on, wetting the corner of a napkin from the water bottle. "'Hold that on it.' The others began to laugh. "'Flossie did that,' Vandover explained to Toby. Ellis was hastily looking through his pockets, fumbling about among his little books. "'I had something here,' he kept muttering if I can only find it, that told just what to do when you cut yourself with glass. There may be glass in it, you know. Oh, that's all right, that's all right, exclaimed young Haight, now altogether disconcerted. It doesn't amount to anything. I tell you what, observed Geary, get some court plaster at the snake doctor's just above here. No, no, that's all right, returned young Haight, moving off. Good night, I'll see you again pretty soon. He went away. Ellis, who was still searching through his little books, suddenly uttered an exclamation. He leaned out into the passage, crying, "'The half of a hot onion, tie it right, on the cut.' But hate had already gone. "'You see,' explained Ellis, "'that draws out any little particles of glass. Look at this,' he added, reading an item just below the one he had found. "'You can use cigar ashes for eczema.' Flossie nodded her head at him, smiling and saying, "'Well, the next time I have eczema, I will remember that.' Flossie left them a little after this, joining Nanny and May in the larger room that held the noisy party. The three fellows had another round of drinks. All the evening Ellis had been drinking whiskey. Now he astonished the others by suddenly calling for beer. He persisted in drinking it out of the celery glass, which he emptied at a single pull. Then Vandover had claret punches all round, protesting that his mouth felt dry as a dustbin. Geary at length declared, that he felt pretty far gone, adding that he was in the humor for having a high old time. "'Say, boys,' he exclaimed, bringing his hand down on the table, "'what do you say that we all go to every joint in town and wind up at the Turkish baths? We'll have a regular time. Let's see now how much money I have.' Thereat they all took account of their money. Vandover had fourteen dollars, but he owed for materials at his art dealer's, and so put away eight of it in an inside pocket." The others followed his example, each one reserving five dollars for immediate use. "'That will be one dollar for the Hammond,' said Geary, "'and four dollars apiece for drinks. "'You can get all we want on four dollars.' They had a last claret punch, and, having settled with Toby, went out. Coming into the cold night air from the warm interior of the Imperial affected Vandover and Geary in a few minutes.' But apparently nothing could affect Ellis, neither whiskey, claret punch, nor beer. He walked steadily between Vandover and Geary, linking an arm in each of theirs. 
These two became very drunk almost at once. At every minute, Vandover would cry out, Yee-ow! That's the way I feel. Just like that. Geary made a josh that was a masterpiece, the success of the occasion. It consisted in exclaiming from time to time, Cherries are ripe. This was funny. It seemed to have some ludicrous, hidden double meaning that was irresistible. It stuck to them all the evening. When a girl passed them on Kearney Street and Geary cried out at her that cherries were ripe, it threw them all into spasms of laughter. They went first to the Palace Garden near the Tivoli Theatre, where Geary and Vandover had beer and Ellis a whiskey cocktail. The performance was just finishing, and they voted that they were not at all amused at a lean, overworked girl whom they saw performing a song and dance through a blue haze of tobacco smoke. So they all exclaimed, cherries are ripe, and tramped out again to visit the Luxembourg. The beer began to go against Vandover's stomach by this time, but he forced it down his throat, shutting his eyes. Then they said they would go to the toughest place in town, Steve Casey's. This was on a side street. The walls were covered with yellowed photographs of once famous pugilists and old-time concert hall singers. There was sand on the floor, and in the dancing room at the back where nobody danced, a jaded young man was banging out polkas and quick steps at a cheap piano. At the Crystal Palace, where they all had shanty gaff, they met one of Ellis's friends, a young fellow of about twenty. He was stone deaf, and in consequence had become dumb but for all that he was very eager to associate with the young men of the city and would not hear of being separated and set apart with the other deaf-mutes. He was very pleased to meet them and join them at once. They all knew him pretty well and called him the dummy. In the course of the evening the party was seen at nearly every bar and saloon in the neighborhood of Market and Kearney Streets. Geary and Vandover were very drunk indeed. Vandover was having a glorious time. He was not silent a minute, talking, laughing, and singing, and crying out continually, Cherries are ripe. When he could think of nothing else to say, he would exclaim, Yee-ow, that's the way I feel. For two hours they drank steadily. Vandover was in a dreadful condition. The dummy got so drunk that he could talk, a peculiarity which at times had been known to occur to him. As will sometimes happen, Geary sobered up a little, and at the grotto bathed his head and face in the washroom. After this he became pretty steady. He stopped drinking and tried to assume the management of the party, ordering their drinks for them and casting up the amount of the check. About two o'clock they returned toward Luxembourg, staggering and swaying. The Luxembourg was a sort of German restaurant under a theater where one could get some very good German dishes. There Vandover had beer and sauerkraut, but Ellis took more whiskey. The dummy continued to make peculiar sounds in his throat, half noise, half speech, and Geary gravely informed the waiter that cherries were ripe. All at once Ellis was drunk, collapsing in a moment. The skin around his eyes was purple and swollen. The pupils themselves were contracted, and the range of vision seemed to stop at about a yard in front of his face. Suddenly he swept glasses, plates, caster, knives, forks, and all from off the table with a single movement of his arm. They all jumped up, sober in a minute, knowing that a scene was at hand. The waiter rushed at Ellis, but Ellis knocked him down and tried to stamp on his face. Vandover and the dummy tried to hold his arms and pull him off. He turned on the dummy in a silent, 
frenzy of rage, and brought his knuckles down upon his head again and again. For the moment Ellis could neither hear, nor see, nor speak. He was blind, dumb, fighting drunk, and his fighting was not the fighting of Vandover. "'Get in here and help, will you?' panted Vandover to Geary as he struggled with Ellis. "'He can kill people when he's like this. Oh, damn the whiskey, anyhow. Look out. Don't let him get that knife.' grab his other arm there now kick his feet out from under him oh kick hard sit on his legs there now ah hell he's bitten me look out here comes the bouncer the bouncer and three other waiters charged into them while they were struggling on the floor vandover was twice knocked down and the dummy had his lips split ella struggled to his feet again and still silent fought them all alike a fine line of froth gathering at the corners of his lips when they were finally ejected, and pulled themselves together in the street outside. Geary had disappeared. He had left them during the struggle with Ellis and had gone home. Ah, you bet he wasn't going to stay any longer with the crowd when they got like that. If Ellis was fool enough to get as drunk as that, it was his own lookout. He wasn't going to stay and get thrown out of any saloon. Ah, no, you bet he was too clever for that. He was sober enough now, and would go home to bed and get a good sleep. The fight in the saloon had completely sobered the rest of them. Ellis was tractable enough again, and very sorry for having got them into such a row. Vandover was horribly sick at his stomach. The three locked arms and started slowly toward the Turkish baths. On their way home, they stopped at an all-night drug store and had some seltzer. Vandover had about three hours sleep that night. He was awakened by the attendant, shaking his arm and crying, "'Half-past six, sir.' "'Huh?' he exclaimed, starting up. "'What about half-past six? I don't want to get up.' "'Told me to call you, sir, at half-past six. Quarter to seven now.' "'Oh, all right, very well,' answered Vandover. He turned away his face on the pillow, while a wretched feeling of nausea crept over him. Every movement of his head made it ache to bursting. Behind his temples the blood throbbed and pumped like the knocking of hammers. His mouth would have been dry but for a thick slime that filled it and that tasted of oil. He felt weak. His hands trembled. His forehead was cold and seemed wet and sticky. He could recall hardly anything of the previous night. He remembered, however, of going to the Imperial and of seeing Flossie, and he did remember at last of leaving word to be called at half-past six. He got up without waking the other two fellows, and took a plunge in the cold tank, dressed very slowly, and went out. The stores were all closed. The streets were almost deserted. He walked to the nearest uptown car line and took an outside seat, feeling better and steadier for every moment of the sharp morning air. Van Ness Avenue was very still. It was about half-past seven. The curtains were down, and all the houses, here and there a servant could be seen washing down the front steps. In the vestibules of some of the smaller houses were loaves of French bread and glass jars of cream, while near them lay the damp, twisted roll of the morning's paper. There was everywhere a great chittering of sparrows, and the cable cars, as yet empty, trundled down the cross streets, the conductors cleaning the windows and metal work. From far down, at one end of the avenue, came the bells of the Catholic Cathedral ringing for early Mass, and a respectable-looking second girl hurried past him, carrying her prayer book. 
at the other end of the avenue was a blue vista of the bay the great bulk of mount tamalpay rearing itself out of the water like a waking lion in front of the little church turner was waiting for him she was dressed very prettily and the cold morning air had given her a fine color you don't look more than half awake she said as vandover came up it was awfully good of you to come oh van you look dreadfully it is too bad to make you get up so early no no protested vandover i was only too glad to come i didn't sleep well last night i hope i haven't kept you waiting i've only just come answered turner but i think it is time to go in the little organ was muttering softly to itself as they entered it was very still otherwise the morning sun struck through the stained windows and made pretty lights about the altar besides themselves there were some half-dozen other worshippers the little organ ceased with a long droning sigh and the minister in his white robes turned about facing his auditors and in the midst of a great silence opened the communion service with the words ye who do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins and are in love and charity with your neighbors as vandover rose with the rest the blood rushed to his head and a feeling of nausea and exhaustion the dregs of his previous night's debauch came over him again for a moment so that he took hold of the back of the pew in front of him to steady himself end of chapter four recording by john miller akron ohio johnmiller.org